podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Some of the topics are addiction, fear, faith, self-compassion, relationships, codependency, emotional intelligence, and more. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. blink of an eye, your world is turned upside down. You barely have time to digest the diagnosis before you are inundated with more information and reality than you can process. Treatments begin, and a cascade of challenges follow for you and those who love and care for you. You may even begin to feel like your days are a haze, and your life is not your own anymore. It can be a demoralizing experience, but it doesn't have to be. While absolute outcomes are out of our hands, the quality of the journey is very much within reach. You can find wellness in the face of illness. Whether it's learning how to nourish your body better, find a mind-body movement practice that soothes and strengthens, learning how to communicate in a healing way, experimenting with a new hobby, staying engaged with work, nurturing your relationships, or becoming a student of mindfulness, there are a wealth of ways to live and feel well with cancer. Atara Weisberger. In this episode, Valeria Tellez interviews Atara Weisberger on cancer coaching, guidance for living your best life, and thoughts in between. Atara is a Mayo Clinic certified health and wellness coach and cancer recovery specialist with over two decades of experience coaching individuals and families to vibrant health. Atara's warmth, Insight, knowledge, and one-size-fits-one philosophy honors the whole you for outstanding results. In addition to coaching, Atara is a lifelong athlete, marathon runner, Whole Foods consultant and cook, outdoors woman, mother of three, health and wellness columnist, inspirational speaker, and decidedly free spirit. Atara holds a master's degree from Indiana University, and a bachelor's degree from UMass Amherst. Atara is also currently teaching an innovative course at Holy Name Medical Center for cancer patients called Wellness in the Face of Illness and hopes to make wellness coaching an integral part of cancer care. Here is the interview with Atara Weisberger. In your own words, who is Atara Weisberger? So first, a mom, second, an athlete, third, passionate about helping people shift internally and externally 
definitely kind of have a, a wanderer's spirit, I think. And what else? I'm, I'm both kind of at times in the sky and at other times very firmly planted on the ground. It depends on what I'm doing and when you catch me. Um, what else? I'm really passionate about what I'm doing for work right now. And I feel definitely like there's a sea change coming. So um, in terms of the field of wellness coaching. So I think it's a, it's a timely conversation. Yeah, it sounds great. Thank you so much. Before we talk about wellness in the face of illness and cancer coaching, I have a few questions, general questions for you, as I mentioned earlier. The first one is, how is wellness different from well-being? That's a great question. So I would say that they're very similar. Wellness is more of a state, and I would say well-being is almost more of an emotional awareness of where you might be in terms of wellness. So someone, for example, in the realm of cancer, so you could say that they don't enjoy physical wellness in the moment when they're being treated when they're ill, but they may may still have a sense of well-being. They may be surrounded by people they love. They may be growing in ways they never expected. They may really appreciate the care that they're getting. They may have a positive outlook. They may still, even if they're not experiencing physical wellness, they may still have a sense of well-being. So to me, it's the difference between almost like an objective state and and more of an emotional cognitive sense of where you are in the spectrum of overall happiness and life satisfaction. Mm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Do you connect well-being with inner strength? I don't know if I would connect well-being and inner strength. I would connect well-being with clarity of understanding what your values are, understanding what's important to you, what's most important to you, and having a sense that your actions and your values are lined up. And I think that's what creates a sense of well-being. I don't know if I would say that it's strength per se. Right, inner strength that I kind of thought about when you were um, describing the state of well-being, I thought about gratitude. I think gratitude is probably one of the single most pivotal traits when it comes to wellness and well-being. I think that the ability to recognize and appreciate and then go on to express good in your life is really at the heart of a sense of wellness. Yeah, I agree 100%. What motivates you to be a good person, Atara? I think that everybody is given certain gifts and talents that are utterly unique to them and have a very particular role in the world. And, you know, those talents and abilities are as diverse as the number of people that there are walking the planet. And I feel like it's not only a good thing to use those talents and abilities to make the world better, I feel like you have an obligation to do that. Um, I believe strongly that what we see is not all that there is um, and that each person is a fusion of 
you know, their, their physical selves and their non-physical selves and that there's a bigger picture to everything. And what drives me, what motivates me is having, and it's taken a long time. I've had a long road to find this. Um, but that I'm understanding kind of what my unique gifts are and going with that concept that I really have an obligation to people and to the world around me to use those gifts, talents, skills, abilities to make the world a better place. And what I love more than anything is to help people live their absolute best, fullest life and to help them make the internal and external transitions that they need in order to do that. Wow, yeah. What do you think yeah, holds us back from expressing, from being this unique gift in the world? What a beautiful question. A couple of things. I think static. I think that it. you have to get quiet. You have to look inside. You have to be introspective. You have to want to be introspective. Um, you have to be meaning-driven meaning that you might have gifts, talents, and abilities, but the most important thing to you, and let's say that those are something that might lend themselves to social service, but instead, you know, something in your upbringing led you to be afraid, for example, of not having enough money. So you go after a job that is going to give you the financial security that you crave. Um, so I think it's a, it's a combination of how we were raised and the messages we internalized about ourselves because of that, whether that's a fear of failure or it's a sense that the priorities that you were raised with don't necessarily resonate with the inner priorities. And this idea of static, that the world is really loud <laughs> and it's getting louder all the time. And in order to hear that voice, you, you have to want to know what's really underneath there. And then you have to allow yourself and give yourself the opportunity to get quiet and think about like, what is it that I have? What are my, what is it that I do that's unique? And in a way, coaches can be helpful with that is to help you find that space and create that space for you to get quiet and kind of listen to what it is that you think those gifts are. So I would say, you know, how you're raised, the messages you internalized, your own fears and, you know, cognitive processes, and then kind of the global static. That makes so much sense to me. He also kind of raises a concern about obsession. Once uh, we realize this, that something's holding us back, that was my case, childhood um, issues, and then I realized what they were, and then I was obsessed with the idea of freeing myself from that and finding that voice and living that life with the hope that would be much, much better, completely different. And I think that brought me to a place of um, acceptance. And the more I rest and I embrace acceptance for whatever happens, the more peaceful I feel. Sometimes you have to swing to the opposite end of the spectrum in order to come back to center. So when I listen to you talk, it sounds to me like you already have an awareness that, you know, when you're trying to overcome or it's true with behavior change also, when you're trying to change either a perspective or a behavior or something within yourself, it's not uncommon to swing to the opposite extreme in order to come back to the middle. And listening to you in terms of your experience of trying to let go what happened to you as a younger person, 
is that, you know, your healing became a huge part of your focus and your life energy, but you've already started to have an awareness of, okay, but then maybe that was a little too much and maybe need to find my middle. And I think that that's not an uncommon experience. I don't even know if I'd say that's unhealthy is to swing and then come back. Staying in the extremes, you know, I mean, balance in all things is what your body strives for. It's what your mind strives for. You know, it's what your spirit strives for. It's like balance is kind of the ultimate yin and yang together are balance, right? So it's really finding that balance. If you've been tipped heavily to one end of the seesaw, if you want it to come to balance, you're going to have to give it a good shove on the other side of the seesaw. (laughs) And then eventually, because you're a self-aware person and because you care about yourself and others, you will eventually come back to your middle point. Mm. Wow. I never heard it that way, but yeah. (laughs) I'm wondering if this is a constant effort to be in that center to find that balance or we should let go of that too, of trying to be in the center? So I think you have to watch out for perfection, <laughs> perfectionist tendencies, right? Because that's what, like, as you're talking, that's kind of what's coming to me. What I'm feeling is like this kind of quest for the perfect something, you know, like being perfect at either one way or perfect at another way. Um, I think that to stay in, just to go back to the seesaw analogy, you know, if you're on a balance board to stay in the middle, you know, you can't hang out on the edge of it, but even standing in the middle is going to require a little bit of constant shifting. You know, you're going to move a little more pressure on the right leg and a little more pressure on the left leg and that there's this kind of constant slight shifting. So you're not swinging to the extremes anymore. Your feet are no longer on the outside of the balance board but they're kind of in the middle and there's still going to be a bit of shifting right and left. Um, and then as life goes on and things change, the center of the seesaw may move as well. You know, like people, once they, you know, when they go through different life stages and they go through different life experiences, it's like that seesaw doesn't just kind of stay in the center of the park. Sometimes it goes off to the other side and you have to follow that. So, you know, nothing is ever static. I don't believe that you're either moving one way or you're moving another, but nobody's ever just static dead center. So, yeah, wow. Um, I didn't expect to hear um what you said, but yeah, this is it. Um, The center is everywhere. That's the way I feel now. It's everywhere. It's like a dance, this constant movement, but it's perfect. Everything is actually exactly how it's supposed to be. Right. This perfection already. Yeah, absolutely. And it's uniquely designed to help you grow the way you're supposed to grow to reach your potential in the world. True. Let me see my other warm-up question. <laughs> what is the world? What is the world's greatest need, in your opinion, Tara? The world's greatest need, I'd say, what comes to me like instantly is acceptance. Like that's the word that comes to me is like I think people need to have the humility to to recognize the humanity in somebody else, just like they want people to recognize the humanity in themselves. To me, that's the world's greatest need is to understand that every person who's walking the planet has value and a purpose and is just as human. And I saw a quote once. I thought it was so good. It said something like, you know, something about like, don't judge me for the the sins that don't speak to you. Something along those lines, where it's just, you know, everybody messes up and everybody makes mistakes. And you want people to understand that about you. You want people to give you the benefit of the doubt. You want people to, if 
someone sues you doing something to you want them to understand that where you've been and what you've been through and that you just had a horrific day or a horrific week or you just lost someone valuable, you know, important to you. And we want people to give us the benefit of the doubt. And I think that we have to give that to other people too. you know, having a good eye, as they say, and understanding that everybody is doing the best they can with what they have at the time. We are and everybody else is. And that kind of acceptance and understanding, it would be a different universe if we approached people like that. So true. That makes me think about self-love, self-acceptance, because it starts with us, right? If we can't accept ourselves, that would be so much harder to accept others. I think impossible, really. Yes. If you don't have that within, right? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. What is love to you? I guess there's just like so many levels of that to me. You know, there's the there's the love of a parent to a child. There's the love of an individual to a partner. There's the love of somebody who you who's a stranger. But, you know, I mean, if you look at like at least in the tradition that I was raised in, the definition of love is to give and that you're building a connection with people that you give to. And that creates a sense of love because you've put something of yourself into somebody else. You know, I guess I guess I don't have a singular definition of it. I feel like that's mm-hmm. like asking what is the universe made of, you know? <laughs> I don't have a singular definition because to me there there are many different kinds of love. You know, I love chocolate. <laughs> but I also really love my kids, you know? So it's like it's hard to it's hard for me to kind of pin that very rich, deep word down into a sound bite, I guess. Fair enough. <laughs> Um, do you believe in unconditional love? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Would that be the love of, of a mother? Totally. Totally. I definitely can say I feel absolutely unconditional love with my kids. Does it start with you? Do you have unconditional love for yourself too? Probably not. <laughs> That's so interesting to me. Is it really possible to love unconditionally others, even our own children, when we don't have that love for ourselves? I'm just wondering here. Yeah, I mean, it's not that I don't love myself. I just don't know if I would call it that I have unconditional love for myself. Like if I started doing things that I didn't feel good about, if I started living a life that was against my values, you know, for whatever reason, you know, temporary insanity, a moment of reason lost or whatever it is. I mean, I think that I could get myself to a place where I feel bad enough that I'm just like, you know, uh, like what is going on? Who am I? And I do not like who this person has become. There is that possibility. But, you know, with my kids, I mean, you know, they're teenagers and young adults. And I see, you know, I've taken them through lots of stages and, you know, through, some pretty tough times and, and a divorce and, you know, re, and blended families. And we've been through a lot together and they've all taken different paths. And it doesn't really, as long as, you know, it doesn't really matter to me what their path is. I don't know what they could possibly do that would ever shift how I feel about them. It's fascinating that you are able to give unconditional love to your children, but then if you put yourself instead in that place of need for a conditional love, then it, you're not sure if you could provide right. the same love. Right. 
because it's a priority to me to have my kids know and understand that they're loved unconditionally. Not that it's not a priority for myself, but it's it's almost like the relationship that I would have with like a spouse, which is, you know, sort of like expectations of myself are high, just like expectations of people who are close to me, you know, I think are pretty high. Too, so... Yeah, perhaps we confuse unconditionally loving ourselves with being selfish. Ah, oh, that's interesting. You know, that, that that especially with women, not so much with men, but especially with women, that this idea of self-care as being selfish in something that I, a talk that I recently gave, I said that, you know, self-care is, the opposite of self-care is not selflessness. It's self-neglect. And I think that that's really, you know, we do that to ourselves more often than not. We'll work ourselves into the ground, you know, and say like, listen, I've got too much to do, too many people to take care of, too much going on. I don't have time for me. And then how long do you think that's going to last before your body or your mind, you know, pops up and goes, hey, listen, you've been ignoring me for a long time. So I'm about to give you something that's going to get your attention quick. Yeah, it, it takes awareness, doesn't it, to uh, shift, to go back and hold ourselves as uh, this high priority being, right? Because without, yeah, well-being, then we can't provide anything to anyone. And you said women, we, are, we tend to be more this way. Yeah, because I think our nature is to be nurturers and, you know, turning that nurturing towards ourselves. And you do have to balance like that. There, you know, it goes back to that idea of like standing in the middle of the seesaw or the balance board, because there are people who spend a lot of time just thinking about themselves and not enough time thinking about other people. And there are people who only spend time thinking about it when really it's, you know, again, it's finding that balance spot. It's like not going to the extreme on either side. It means that you take care of yourself in order to be able to take care of others. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's the right order. Right. Let me talk to you for a moment about God. Uh, Do you believe in God? And if you do, who is God and where is God? Um, I do believe in God. God is everywhere. Um, What is God? I think God is something that we cannot grasp. It's not... It's not something that the human mind, it, God is beyond space, beyond time. And yet at the same time, I don't believe it's like God created the world and then disappeared. I think he, he, she, whatever it's, I don't think it has a gender either. You know, I think it has female qualities and male qualities. And I, I think it's, you know, God is something that we can't get our brains around. Right. What do you think is the purpose and meaning of life? I think we all have a soul journey and there are things that we are both supposed to learn and that we are supposed to do here and experiencing and learning and growing and contributing, I would say, is the reason that we're here. And every person with their unique everything (laughs) has a journey to go through and everything that happens to us in life, all the things that we choose it's all part of that, that soul journey. You know, we're really here to learn and to do and to grow. Moving the conversation to uh, wellness in the face of illness and cancer coaching, I'll be asking you a few questions. My first question is, what does a cancer coach do and how did you become one? 
So a cancer coach works with patients or caregivers to help them, kind of goes back to your original question about what is wellness and well-being. Um, it gives them an opportunity to work on aspects of wellness at any stage in cancer treatment and recovery or prevention for that matter, which means that there are, we look at nine different factors in terms of recovery, remission, and wellness. And they range from, you know, diet change to listening to your intuition, to taking control of your health and being proactive, asking doctors questions, et cetera, using herbs and supplements, um, releasing negative emotions, you know, developing more positive emotions, so, you know, creating social support. Um, it could be deepening their spiritual connection or, you know, kind of looking at what are their reasons to, for living? What are their reasons for carrying on? And so what a wellness coach does in terms of cancer is sits down with the, the patient or the caregivers and really helps them figure out like, what are their, what are their priorities? What are their values? What means the most to them? What are areas of their lives that they see cancer is going to give them an opportunity to work on? So, you know, things kind of come into high relief when life comes into high relief when you've been diagnosed with cancer and things that were, you know, figuratively speaking, things that were quiet before can become very loud and things that were loud before, maybe not so important in the bigger picture become quiet. And so what a wellness coach does is really helps the patient to hear, you know, now that they're in the space of cancer like, what is it that's important to them? What do they want to work on? How can they work on their wellness, even when their physical body may be struggling with illness? And a coach really helps guide that process and then helps them to create really concrete action steps that they can take. Um, we set goals. We review the goals weekly. I touch base with them, you know, between sessions and just give them encouragement and give them support and see what they need, um, provide them with any resources they may have, help them go through even when they're initially diagnosed to help them go through, you know, they're, they're really inundated with a huge volume of information when they're first diagnosed and it can be really overwhelming and just helping them sort through the information and see how they feel about what the doctors are saying and help them process it a little bit. So, you know, that's kind of a, a snapshot picture of what cancer coaching is about. Um, and I should say that it's really very, it's like if you're to Google a cancer coach, you're not going to find many. Um, it's really a very nascent field. Most people don't connect wellness and illness so intimately. Um, they think first you have to get physically healthy and then we can talk about wellness and prevention and remission after that. Um, and I don't believe that. I believe that cancer gives you an opportunity to look at and review your life and reprioritize. And it gives you an opportunity to make your life richer than it was before you were diagnosed. Yeah, it sounds so good that this approach that it's almost like we can apply to living life without cancer, even even life without any illnesses. Absolutely. So how did you become a cancer coach, Atara? 
So I've been a health and wellness coach for about 16 years, even before it kind of had a title. You know, people would ask me, like, are you, a, are you a nutritionist? Are you a registered dietitian? No, I'm not that. Are you a personal trainer? Yes, I happen to be a personal trainer. Um, but that's not what health and wellness coaching is. Um, and in the last 10 years, it's really taken a quantum leap in terms of programs that are out there to train people, recognition of what wellness coaching is, the recognition that having information is not making people healthier. We have a lot of information. That's not the problem. It's really about behavior change. And that change often requires support. And that's where a coach comes in. And in terms of how I got specifically into cancer coaching, I had a number of clients that I was working with like just in terms of general wellness, they wanted to lose weight. They weren't feeling great. Their energy level was low. They had, you know, a poor work-life family balance and they wanted to work on that. And while I was working with them, they were diagnosed. One was diagnosed with multiple myeloma. One was diagnosed with a small cell lung cancer. She had never been a smoker. She was a mother of four. Um, she unfortunately was also a good friend and did not make it. Um, but as I was working with them, you know, we had to make kind of a decision and there were other clients as well, but we had to kind of make a decision about like, you know, is there a role for me to continue to work with them? You know, is there, is there something that we can continue to do together that they felt would be helpful? And I heard their, their issues, you know, like, like I listened to, you know, some things that physicians, although well-intended would say that would bring their spirits down and make it harder for them to fight. And, you know, things that would happen, you know, along the way, like they would want to ask questions and doctors would just kind of say, you know, Hey, listen, I'm the expert here. You need to listen to what I'm telling you, you know, to exploring alternative, knowing what their options were in the alternative wellness world that may be in conjunction with conventional medicine, which may have been, you know, instead of, and I just saw that they had their, their, they didn't really have a way to frame what was happening in a positive, proactive, productive way. And so as I started kind of seeing the gaps in what was happening with them, I started thinking about how, you know, what kind of training I could get to really help me help them. And I found very little out there. Um, I did get a, a one certification there, but, you know, health and wellness coaching is a nascent field to begin with. And the idea of a cancer coach wellness, you know, when they're ill is nearly unheard of. And so, uh, you know, I really saw a need for it and started to connect with physicians and start to reach out to oncologists in different specialty areas and reached back to, I was trained at the Mayo Clinic. So I reached back to people at the Mayo Clinic um, and just try to kind of see where this could possibly go. And along the way, I've, you know, learned a lot and, and connected with enough people on this to see that there really is very real potential here. And, uh, so now, so wellness in the face of illness is actually a workshop that I designed and, um, I got connected to the cancer support community, which used to be called Gilda's club after Gilda Radner. Um, it's a larger organization and they are actually based out of Holy name hospital, which is in Teaneck, New Jersey, which is about 20 minutes from where I live. Um, and I teach that once a week to patients and caregivers and, uh, and it's very well received. So that I do as a group, which is really fun. And, uh, I learn way more from them than they probably learned from me. Um, but I love it. And they're like incredible people who have gone through an incredible process and I'm just grateful to be part of it.
It's wonderful what you do. Yeah, really wonderful, though. You talk about one size fits one. So what is your one size fits one philosophy? Mm, That's one of my favorites. It means that when it comes to wellness, that there isn't a single paradigm, that everybody comes in with their own body chemistry. They come in with their own history. um, They come in with their own set of goals and values. And I, I see this with nutrition also, just kind of from the purely nutrition perspective is that, you know, what works for one person doesn't work for somebody else. One person may do great on a vegan diet, a vegan raw diet, and somebody else will actually get ill on a vegan raw diet, or somebody will do excellent on paleo and somebody else will feel tired and sluggish and have skin problems and constipation and you name it from that. You know, so I see that, you know, the one size fits one is really what coaching is about, which is that nobody can tell you what wellness feels like to you, except you. And that we're there as support, as facilitators, as, as, you know, resources, but ultimately the client themselves is going to guide that process, you know, and for somebody to say, in order for you to feel well, you have to eat like this. You have to exercise like this. You have to get this number of hours of sleep a night. You have to practice X, Y, Z is it's not going to work. You have to hear the person's physical, emotional history. You have to understand their cultural context. You have to understand what's important to them. You have to understand what their finances are. I mean, there are so many areas that are impacted. You know, if wellness is going to be a holistic venture, there's no way that there are two people that have the same circumstances. It's just not going to be. Right. What has been the biggest challenge in assisting others to find wellness in the face of illness? Ambivalence. I want this, but I want that. I want to exercise, but I want to sleep in. I want to explore more holistic ways of treating my cancer. But what if I go astray and my doctor, you know, whatever happens? I mean, I think that it's human ambivalence is human nature. Um, and I think helping people sort through the ambivalence of having, you know, the, I want this, but I want that. I want to lose weight, but I love chocolate cake and I want that. And I want to eat what I want to eat, but I want to look how I want to look, you know, is really a thing for most people, you know, because we enjoy what we enjoy and it's human nature to want pleasure. There's nothing wrong with that. We're created that way, you know, like otherwise God would have made food all taste the same and made it black and white you know, and that's not what it is. So we're, we're designed for, you know, to seek pleasure, but sometimes we have other goals that stand in the way of that and they butt heads. And it's how do you sort through that butting heads? Have you found an effective way of helping them to make better choices and find clarity, to fight for what they want, to achieve what they want? Right. So that's really like the, that's in some ways the essence of coaching is the the way is to get them to articulate, you know, what they want their lives to look like and what they're willing to do in order to make that happen. And that's really kind of the essence of the wellness coaching process is to help them sort through that. Uh, Is there a magic formula to ambivalence? I think recognizing it, calling it out, you know, calling a spade a spade, like it's normal to want two things that conflict at the same time, but you can't do both of them. So how do you want to proceed? 
Yeah, it might go back to what you said earlier about asking big questions like, what do you value the most? What about if you died a month from now? What would you do? You know, start doing today. Mm -hmm. I love those questions. And I ask myself a lot those questions when in doubt. Right. Right. Yeah. Have you done that before? Have you um, asked those questions to one of your clients? So one of the things that I ask, it's a, it's not, not like if you were to die a month from now, I try not to, <laughs> I try not to put it in those terms, you know, but I will ask them like, what would make you feel like you're living and not just existing? What would your life look like if you felt like you were really living? Who's around you? What are you doing? What's happening in your life? What are you not doing? Who's not in your life? right? Because sometimes you need to clear the path also. Like sometimes you need to, you know, surround yourself with people who are more positive or surround yourself with people who are supportive of what you're trying to do. And sometimes that means walking away from things before, you know, that played a bigger role. And so, you know, that's one of the questions is like, if you, if I called you a year from now and I said to you, how are you doing? And you're like, Atara, I am living. And I said to you, what are you doing? Like you, like, tell me about what your life looks like that gives you that feeling, you know, that excited feeling that I hear in your voice of like, wow, it's hard. I'm totally living. Like I'm living the life. What is living the life for you? How do you feel? What are you doing? Who's around you? How are you spending your time? Where do you live? You know, what, what are your circumstances? And from there, that becomes kind of a baseline for helping them move forward. Yeah, I like that. It's like visualizing the future. Um, it's a projection, imagination, and it's great. Right. It seems to me like death, it's taken more seriously as a fact than life is for some reason. Right, right. Um, what is to communicate in a healing way? You mentioned this um, on your blog. To communicate in a healing way is that, you know, words are very powerful. And you can literally build and destroy people with words. And learning to communicate with yourself in a healing way is huge. You know, I say to people a lot, like, in our own minds, in the quiet of our own heads, we say things to ourselves that we would never dream of saying to somebody else. We have a voice in our heads that if you said that to somebody, you would have no friends, <laughs> you know? But we talk to ourselves that way. You know, you're such an idiot. How could you have done that? Oh, you're so weak. Why are you like, why? Oh, you know, you're so fat. You're so, uh, you know, I mean, like the way we talk to ourselves, sometimes you really wouldn't talk to your worst enemy and learning how to talk to yourself in a kind, healing way and learning how to talk to others from that same place. Meaning that if, you know, if you're kind, if your language, if your internal language is harsh, even if you're nice to people on the outside, if you're internal dialogue is harsh, it's going to be difficult to, to communicate with other people. It's the same thing as, you know, love yourself, love others, but, but it's a little more subtle and it's a little more, it's a little easier to grab onto in terms of like loving yourself is a huge, if you don't, and you, you know, it's a, that's a, a, a lifelong for some people, you know, effort, but learning to talk to yourself in a healing way is a bit more tangible and you can, it's a bit easier to work on. And then your communications with other people are just by definition going to be the same, going to be more similar and going to be healing too. And it's not just healing communication in the sense of, 
you know, what a coach does or what a therapist does in terms of giving somebody support and encouragement and positive feedback. It's more like communicating in a way that will build bridges instead of break them. Mm. Yeah, I like that approach a lot. I love that. And but also what you said earlier, that sometimes we need to clear the path, right? We have to um, kind of remove some people from our lives in order to get our our health back, wellness. Absolutely. Absolutely. But we can do that in a kind way. I agree 100%. Yep. Yes. Yep. Um, what is the difference between mindfulness and meditation? So ironic that you asked me that because I had a client as she was walking out the door the other day asked me almost that exact question. That's very funny. So mindfulness is an awareness of the right here, right now. It means that the past is gone, the future has not yet happened and is unknown. And, you know, it's like the, the famous phrase, like, you know, the past is history, you know, the future is a mystery and, you know, today is a present, right? So that whole idea is that mindfulness is this idea that there is only right now and tuning into what is right now without concern for the future and without ruminating about the past. Meditation is a technique to achieve mindfulness. Wow. So what is to meditate? Can you describe the processes, what happens to the mind and body? So I guess I would define meditation as getting quiet, just getting quiet physically, like getting quiet outside, inside. Although there are people, you know, it doesn't mean that your surroundings have to be quiet because there are certainly skilled meditators who could probably sit in the middle of a football stadium when the Giants are playing and meditate successfully, you know? Um, but for, you know, mere mortals like us, um, that's a little tougher. But I, I think it's really just about, uh, you know, I would say meditation is whatever practice allows you to really get quiet inside. And it gives you an opportunity to either hear your own voice or just to just to not have that constant stream of thoughts that leads to a bodily response. You know, like everything, I was listening to a, a, a podcast last night, a wellness podcast last night, and he was talking about what happens in the body when you tell yourself that something is a threat versus when you tell yourself something is a challenge. And the measure the physiological response of the body when you say this is a real threat versus this is a real challenge, that there are measurable differences between the two of them. And so meditation is really that kind of the, the opportunity to, to quiet all systems so that you can, you know, whether there's a purpose to it or not, I don't, it could just be just to get quiet and physiologically, you know, calm, like kind of wipe away the static and calm your system. I think my last question is about positive psychology. What is positive psychology and how does it help cancer patients? Great question. So positive psychology is one of my favorite things to think about, read about, talk about. It means that you're focusing on somebody's natural strengths and their natural inclinations and harnessing them, like really focusing on what they bring to the table that's good and focusing on the successes that they've already had and using those successes in life to build on future success. So 
for like the contrast to that might be that there are certain kinds of therapy, for example, that are what we call problem focused instead of solution focused. And the beauty of positive psychology is that it's very much solution focused, not even necessarily in a concrete outcome. The solution focus could be, you know, changing how you think about something, but it's really based on, it's not based on like where you're weak and what you've done wrong and what your problems are. It's based on what are your strengths? What are your inclinations? What are those gifts that you have that you, you know, that you can use and harness in order to improve yourself going forward? And in terms of how it relates to cancer, patients is that looking at their strengths and looking at how they can, you know, if somebody's, let's say somebody's like really organized and that's a strength of theirs. So they can, you know, how can we harness that strength of organization in order to give you a a little bit more of a sense of control over what's happening with your medical care or whatever to, to take their strengths and their abilities and their successes and their inclinations, the positive ones, and, and seeing how we can help harness that in order to facilitate healing, recovery, and prevention. Yeah, I read that somewhere, but I, I had forgotten about the approach. And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. It's very powerful. Right, right. Because then you're tapping into um, strength and not the opposite, right? Exactly. And it's really like a very face-forward approach, which I love. It's not, not you're not getting stuck in the muck of the past. You're looking at what worked and then building on what worked to continue to grow. So the final ones, I think I have about four of them here. How do you define success? I don't know if I have an answer to that. I would say, I mean, off the top of my head, I would say like the ability to to be consistent, like to have a a real synergy between what you do and what you believe. I would say that's a big piece of success. And another piece of success is, you know, it's, it's almost like integrity. It's like, do what you say, say what you mean. Being like authentic to me is, is success in the world. You know, I mean, if you're, if your natural inclination is to be a serial killer, okay, maybe not, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, you know, but, but I, but in general, you know, in, in more normal circumstances, I, you know, I would say like the ability to be authentic uh, in the world and, and to be able to pick something that you want to achieve, whatever that is, and then just go for it. You can't control outcomes. You know, like you, you can't, we're not in control. We're only in control of the effort. We're never in control of the absolute outcome. You know, there are people who can work their tails off in business and they just never make it. Like they work hard, they have the right education and it's just like not part of their life path or their soul journey, you know? And so it can't be defined by, by an outcome because, because we're just not in control of that. You know, all we're in control of is our effort in the world. And so if you're, if you're successful in making a level of effort that's good for you and good for people around you, I guess that would be success. Yeah, yeah that makes sense too. <laughs> what is to be strong? It means doing the right thing, even when it doesn't serve you. That you always keep in the front of your mind what, what it means to you to be a good person and to stick with that, even when you're pushed, you know, having healthy values and then 
sticking with them, even in the face of, of everything going down against it, you know, and no matter what society is doing or whatever it is, is like to be good, to be, you know, true to yourself, to be fair. Yeah. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself? That I'm not in control. That hard work isn't enough. That like, that's not a guarantee. Um, that, that continues to be a very tough lesson, a very painful lesson for me is that, you know, doing the right thing and working really hard doesn't guarantee a kind of external success, which is really where my definition of success has come from is that, you know, I've had to, in my life, there have been so many difficult situations and I've had to really stick very closely to doing what I believe is good and right and, and staying the course in the face of a lot of adversity and understanding that that doesn't mean that I'm going to change the outcome, that doing good and being good and working hard doesn't guarantee that the outcome is going to go the way I want it to, that there's still a bigger picture and a bigger plan that I just don't have much control over. And I certainly have no control over other people and how they respond, you know? So that was probably my toughest lesson to learn that like, I can't control, I can't do it. Like I can't, I can't control the outcome. Yeah, it might be the hardest lesson for all of us. <laughs> one, one of which, what is another word for healing? Wholeness. Wholeness, right. Uh, if you knew you would lose the body soon, uh, would you change anything? Would you uh, live your life differently from that one? I would pack up my kids and live in a much prettier place <laughs> than I live now. I would not live in New Jersey. No offense to any New Jersey listeners, <laughs> but this is just not where I was meant to be. I mean, clearly I was meant to be here, but it is not where I want to die. <laughs> I'll tell you that. <laughs> but I love what I do and I'm blessed to have great friends and great family. And, you know, I really follow my passions and I have a lot of interests and I take care of myself. But I would say, you know, the one thing that I would change is where, uh, yeah, <laughs> I would want to be somewhere prettier <laughs> that this place is not at all consistent with my, uh, with my persona and my personality, you know? Yeah. Do you have a place in mind? Oh, anywhere in the mountains, anywhere, anywhere with green and green and green and places that I can run and bike and hike just out my back door. That's where I want to go. <laughs> that makes me think about California. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Colorado yes. sounds pretty good. Colorado. Utah sounds right. pretty good. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Do you believe in life after death? Yes. What kind of life? I don't know what it's going to look like. I just think this is this is a this is an interim spot. I, I think that we have souls, and this is one step in the journey. I'm pretty sure that I've been here before, um, and you know, I feel like I have no idea what it is like. I don't think we can imagine it, but I definitely believe that there is something after this. Would you be at peace if you were about to lose the body, and this was it? That was the experience here. In a way, yes. In a way, no. I mean, are there things that I would do over differently? A hundred percent. There are things I would do over differently. Um, I would have listened to myself more and been less influenced by other people's feeling about how I should live my life. 
I think that that would have led me down a whole completely different path. But the flip side is, is that the path that I did take has created so much growth and wisdom and awareness that I've been able to share with other people. And so, you know, there's that kind of leaving behind that ripple effect of having, you know, I think the thing I feel best about is how many lives I've touched and, you know, that I've helped people find their own joy in life and find their own wellness and find, you know, experience a level of living that they wouldn't have otherwise. Um, and I feel good about that. Like to me, that that is my soul's work. And I've had the opportunity to do that, but I wouldn't have been so helpful to them if I hadn't been through so much myself. Right. Yeah. What are three things about life you know for sure, Matara, as of today? Three things about life that I know for sure. There is no perfect life. There will always be joy and there will always be pain. That God gives us the tools that we need to overcome our challenges, not necessarily in the way that we think or expect. They don't believe that we're put in a situation that we cannot handle and that we cannot grow from. I believe that they're in every challenge that we face, that there is ample room for growth and wisdom and that there are a lot of good people out there. That's what I know. Yeah. It has been a great conversation. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Yeah. Where can we find more information about you? What do you do? Products, future projects? So you can go to my website, which is www.tribecoaching.net. And you can also, people can feel free to shoot me an email, coachatara at gmail.com. Um, I have a blog on my website. Um, and when you go to the website, you can also, um, there's a pop-up for you to sign up. I send out a weekly newsletter and never any sales involved in it at all. It's just information like the one that I sent out this morning. I looked at the pros and cons of intermittent fasting and I gave five nutrition hacks if people, you know, are, are busy and hurried. So there's always, you know, there's always good stuff. Um, so if people want to be on the mailing list for that, they are welcome to go to the website, www.tribecoaching.net. Tribe is T-R-I-B-E. And uh, you can sign up for the newsletter and you can always reach me. You know, I have a contact page there too. So if anyone has any questions, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram. <laughs> people can find me a whole bunch of ways. Thank you so much again, Atara. You know, I'll talk to you soon. My pleasure. Thank okay, you. take care. You too. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Atara Weisberger, please visit her website at www.tribecoaching.net. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Bickrock. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.